Great. Well, good morning. My name's Nathan. Welcome to Emmaus Church Community. A couple of things as we get started. First, we'd love to pray with you this morning. And um, there's a way to pray uh, by requesting via the chat bar on the online, um, the live stream. If you just request prayer, someone can pray with you in that kind of context, or we can even connect you with a with one of our prayer ministers. We've activated our prayer team again. They are standing by and they're ready to pray for you. So I want to encourage you to ask for prayer. Don't try to do this alone. And if there's something that you would like uh, us to join with you, interceding for healing, for direction, for provision, something like that, if you just need encouragement this morning, please reach out for, um, for prayer. We would love to pray with you. All right. Well, here's the good news. The restaurants in Lincoln are, are open again. They're like the sidewalks are full this morning as we drove into the theater. People are having breakfast, so that's good. Few of the restaurants have remained open throughout the last 10 weeks, like for takeout and that kind of thing. But now it seems that everybody is back in business. So that means it is time to eat. So if you missed Mother's Day, if that was sort of a, uh, then you know what? You got another shot at it. You can go out and make it happen, right? You, you can make this work. If you were looking forward to a graduation dinner and that just didn't really work out too well, let's do it. Let's take care of that. The last time we were all together in this building, in the theater for church, was during the season of Lent, which is a season of fasting, right? Then the quarantine started, and two weeks later it was Easter, and so the big feast of Easter that ends the fast happened while most of us were sheltering in place, and things were feeling a little bit less than celebratory. It was all very new and very disappointing. So I imagine that most of you celebrated the feast of the resurrection, which is Easter, in a way that was slightly more muted, potentially, than in years before. But have no fear, more feasts are here. Christianity really is a celebration of life over death. I mean, how cool is it that the Christian church historically has celebrated its fundamental doctrines by eating, by gathering around tables and sharing food together. So if you found us online this morning and you are considering the Jesus story, I want to invite you with my whole heart into an authentic journey of discovery of the story and the person of Jesus Believe that there is so much to celebrate even in this season because of Christ. And if you're online with us this morning and you've been part of our church community for a long time, you know that we are super pro-food. The cafe, which has been sad and empty for 10 weeks, will be filled with good food and good people once again soon, we hope, and we're excited about that. But until that day, I want to invite you to celebrate with us in your homes as we feast on God's word, as we feast on the sacrament of communion together this morning. So we're starting a new series Today, it is called Three Feasts, in which I will teach three core Christian doctrines, which historically Christians have celebrated as feasts. That's how we've done that. I think it's amazing. The theme of the next three Christian feasts, which happen to land on back-to-back-to-back Sundays, beginning today, the theme of these next three feasts is presence. It's presence. Real presence or physical presence is probably something that many of us have taken for granted a lot of the time. But I don't think in recent weeks we're as apt to take physical presence for granted. We've been living in this extreme 10-week worldwide human experiment in presence and in absence. 
We've, cons- we've been consumed, I think, like never before with ideas like proximity and distance. Normal greetings, um, activities around gathering, like touching, shaking hands, entering into a home. These things have been massively adjusted. And there are the few that you're able to be with, and then there are the many that you're not able to be with. And that's affecting everything. That's affecting the way we worship. It's affecting the way we grieve. It's affecting the way we serve. It's affecting the way we work. Everything that we do is affected by this. So for the next three weeks, we're going to teach on the Feast of the Ascension. That's today. Then the Feast of Pentecost. That's next Sunday. And then the Feast of the Trinity. And these are powerful truths that should be celebrated with a lot of food, with big feasts. But really what we're wrestling with are the ideas of the power of presence and the agony of absence. Okay, That's what we're talking about. The power of presence and the agony of absence. So let's look at this book in the New Testament called Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. It's the second book written by a man named Luke. He's a traveling companion and a co-minister with the Apostle Paul. He's a medical doctor. He's a historian. He's probably not Jewish. He writes one of the Gospels, one of the stories of Jesus' life and teachings. It's called The Gospel According to Luke. And this is his second book. He picks up where he left off. The second book called Acts is the history of the early Christian church. He's going to document the emergence of this Jesus movement as it extends beyond the physical on earth life of Jesus. So we're going to look at the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. And what I want to invite you to do as I read this is to notice all of the language about presence and absence. Notice all the language about coming and going, about here and there. Notice how many locations are are referenced, okay? Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them. He gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God on one occasion while he was eating with them. He gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And as he, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him. From their sight, and they were looking as they were looking intently into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go to heaven. 
All right, I want to talk about the content of what Jesus says to the apostles here because it's powerful. But first I want to point out something about the context in which this whole conversation happens with the disciples. Did you notice this crazy, mind-blowing phrase that Luke just drops in here? You can read right over the top of it. The phrase is this. On one occasion while he was eating with them, like it's no big deal. I mean, let's just imagine this for a second. Yes, Jesus ate with his disciples for three years as they were traveling around and doing ministry. But now this is the resurrected Jesus. We could read right over the top of this like it's not a big deal. But here are the disciples eating a meal with the resurrected Jesus, the one that they saw murdered on a cross 40 days ago. And then he was buried in a tomb. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And now he's been showing up at strange times and in interesting places for like a more than a month. They never know when it's going to happen. Like, oh, there he is. He's on the road with the Emmaus travelers. And then, oh, there he is. He walks through a locked door and he's in the upper room with his disciples who are hiding in fear. Oh, there he is. He's appearing to his little brother James. They have a conversation. We don't know what happens, what is said. But we know James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. So something big happened. There he is. Now he's on the beach after an all-night failing fishing trip, welcoming his disciples back to himself. And now he's just eating lunch with his crew. Like it's no big deal. Just eating lunch with the resurrected Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it just kind of cracks me up. Like, um, Lord, could, could you pass the hummus? I mean, something like that. I mean, I just feel like it's remarkably normal. It's super ordinary. On one occasion, Luke just says this, on one occasion, like it's no big deal. When he was eating with them, like you do, right? So the context is so casual, it blows my mind. Especially when you consider the content What he's about to say. What does he say? Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father has promised, which you've heard me talk about. And then he refers to their baptism. He says, remember when you were baptized by John? Well, in a few days, in water, remember that? Well, in a few days, you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Okay, earlier this week I visited a friend and we went to see his church because this new piece of art had been installed in the church, which was powerful and amazing. And as we're leaving the church, I noticed this, this symbol that's been printed into the floor right by the, like the baptismal font near the front door of the church. And here's the picture. And I noticed this because I'm like, hey, I'm preaching on this this week. There's the shell, which is a historic symbol of baptism. Uh, By legend, apparently, sometimes people were baptized by it. You would dip a shell into the water and you'd pour the water over somebody in baptism. On the top of the image, you see the water drops because John baptized you in water. And then I don't know if you can see it, but underneath is a flame, the symbol of flame. That's what we're talking about here. You got the symbol of baptism. You got the reference of a water baptism. Which is a which for um, what's it, it like foretells the ultimate baptism, which is this baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus goes on to say: You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's this city. In all Judea, that'd be like our county. In Samaria, this is where they go, huh? Because that's the guys they don't like. And they don't like us, Samaria, the other type of people, those that don't believe the same stuff we do. And as soon as they're kind of reveling or like reacting to the shock of that, Jesus says, and actually it's going to go all over the world. It's just going to be, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. 
So we go from this ordinary experience, something as normal as a meal, to probably the most extraordinary experience I can only imagine that they've ever had, which is witnessing the ascension of Jesus. This is not written as a metaphor. This is presented to us as physical historical record. Jesus elevates off the ground into the sky, is hidden by a cloud, and that's how he, he doesn't die again, right? That's how he leaves earth. So you've all got your own reference point for things like this. My favorite movie is The Matrix. This reminds me of the final scene of The Matrix. Neo talking on a payphone, just ordinary like you do, talk on a payphone, hangs up the payphone, flies away like Superman, right? You go from the ordinary to the extraordinary, like I didn't see that coming. This is not what I expected because I've never seen it before. It's mind-blowing. There's so many ways we could go with this first chapter of Acts, but let's focus as we gather virtually As we gather online, I want to focus on the idea of real presence. As we worship this morning alongside hundreds of people, together we are with hundreds of people from our own community who are virtually present. Let's consider the idea of real presence together. Two big points this morning. First point, here. Second point, there. What does it mean to be Here, and what does it mean to be there? Let's talk about here. In these few opening sentences of the book of Acts, presence is associated with power. Write that down. Presence is associated with power. In other words, if Jesus is here, power is here. How do the disciples become convinced that Jesus is alive after being killed in the first place? He appears to them multiple times. He shows up. He comes close. He is right here. And his presence is what is so powerful. It's what's so convincing. It's what's so convicting. It's what's so effective in changing the lives of these guys. His presence is powerful. While they're eating lunch together, what command then does Jesus give his disciples? Don't leave. Wait, stay here. Why should they stay here? Because God the Father is going to give them the gift of the Spirit. And Jesus, they have no idea what this means, so Jesus compares it to their baptism. He's like, hey, you remember when John baptized you in water? Do you remember when you were dunked in the water? Do you remember when you were submerged in the water? You were saturated in the water, totally immersed in the water, water pouring over your whole body, soaking wet with water. A similar experience to that is going to happen in just a few days. When you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, you will be submerged in the Spirit. You will be saturated in the Spirit. You will be immersed in the Spirit, soaking wet with the Spirit. Like the Spirit poured over your whole body, dripping with the Spirit. This is full presence language. The presence of the Spirit is going to empower them. It's going to fill them with power. What Power for what specifically? Power to be Christ's witnesses. Now initially they're thinking politically, political power. They're thinking the restoration of the kingdom of Israel like King David from the Old Testament. Let's overthrow Rome, this oppressive government. They're still equating presence with power, but they're thinking military power. They're thinking political power, which is natural. Jesus says, no, not that. Super natural. Okay. Jesus is talking about spiritual power, the power to be 
the witnesses of Christ throughout the entire world. So that wherever the disciples are present, get this, wherever the disciples are present, power is present. And that's what we see in Acts. These guys are walking around doing what Jesus did. Their presence now becomes equated with power. They are full-on, holistic witnesses of Christ. Their presence is power as well. It will be their presence, or to be very accurate, the presence of Christ's spirit in and through them that will be changing the world in the next 28 chapters of the book of Acts, right? All right. I, I want to highlight a basic assumption here that I think we could easily miss as we rush to the details and the dynamics of what Jesus is saying is going to happen with the disciples, which is so exciting, and we'll get there. But, the, but I want to just pause on this basic assumption, and the basic assumption is this. Presence is important to people. Okay. Presence matters. The whole Bible is the story of God making God's self known to humanity. And the way we know God is that God the Son came to us, right? Jesus arrived. Jesus came close. Jesus comes here. God makes himself known to people by being physically present because physical presence matters to people. It matters to people. So what? So what's the point? Ultimately, from like a pastoral standpoint, this is the point. That longing that you have to be with people, it's good and it's right. It's good and it's right. Yeah. That need that you have to be with people, to touch people, to hold people, it's good and it's right. Last week I asked you, how do you like your eggs? And I, and I warned us, I encouraged us not to elevate our personal preferences, like how we like our eggs, to the level of like top priority. And we said that the problem with treating every single personal preference as though it were an essential need is that the distinction between needs and wants gets all confused. What I'm saying now, friends, is that this longing for presence, this longing to be here, and to be with, this is not just personal preference. Okay, this is a basic human need. You were created for this. You need this. The longing you have for this is good and right. Friends, the longing that you have to hug your grandchildren is good and right. The longing you have to gather in the same room with your community to worship God together, that longing is good and right. The longing you have to be close to another person is not just personal preference. This is how you were created, to be close to someone and ultimately to be close to God. It's not good for humans to be alone. God said that. So first big idea today is there is power in presence. Therefore, that longing that we have for presence, oh man, it's good and it's right. Here's the second idea. There is a kind of agony in absence. 
Yeah, that's a strong word, I realize, but there is a kind of agony in absence. If Christ's presence with his disciples is associated with power, with comfort, with provision, if things are good when Jesus is here, then the concern is that all that goes away when Jesus isn't here, right? When he goes there. Jesus is here equals powerful presence. Jesus is there, conspicuous absence. Right? What will it mean for the disciples if Jesus is not here? The tension in the first chapter of Acts is that Jesus is going away. What is that going to mean? Jesus, look at the verbs. Jesus is taken. Jesus is hidden. The disciples are looking into the sky. The angels, apparently, they're angels. They assured the disciples, he's going to come back, right? He's going to come back. We see in the gospel records before Acts more evidence of this concern about Jesus' absence. Thomas says, how can we follow you? We don't even know where you're going. Jesus says to them at one point, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, right? They're feeling already this fear of abandonment. We typically rush to explain this. Well, Jesus had to leave so the Holy Spirit could come, and we will get to that. But this morning, I'm asking us to just pause with this basic truth, to acknowledge a really basic human need for presence and a corresponding grief associated with absence. And I'm suggesting that this longing we have for presence is good and right And I'm also secondly suggesting that grieving absence is good and right. There are some things, in other words, that are so good, they're so beautiful, that it is right to long for them, to desire them. And there are other things that are so devastated, they're so broken, they're so not as they should be, that the only right response is to grieve that, to grieve the absence. Several of you have parents who have been diagnosed with serious illnesses during the last 10 weeks. And you haven't been able to see them or to hold them. Grief is the only reasonable response to that kind of absence. Some of you came home early from college. It was spring break and then uh, guess what? You're not coming back at all and, and you didn't say goodbye to your friends. And it is reasonable. It is actually good and right to grieve that absence. Some of you in middle school and high school, the year ended in a way that was very anticlimactic. Some of you didn't go to your graduations that were planned, right? And that sadness that you feel about that absence is good and right. It would be weird if you weren't grieving that. It wouldn't be necessarily healthy. Some of you have lost a spouse in the last couple of years, and you felt profound loneliness, in recent weeks, as your ability to interact with others has been so severely limited. And I'm, I'm trying to say it's not just understandable that you would be grieving. It's not just understandable. No, it is good and right that you're grieving this, right? Because this should be grieved. This absence of physical presence is something that we grieve over. There is a real agony in absence. All right. Let me take a quick break and ask you to have a short conversation with somebody that you're sitting with. Just turn to the one next to you and respond to these two questions. First question, what have you noticed in the last 10 weeks about physical touch? What have you noticed about physical touch? Second question, 
What have you noticed about the limits of virtual meetings, like Zoom, like FaceTime, like church online? What have you noticed about physical touch? What have you noticed about virtual meetings? Take about 40 seconds, share something with those that you're with, and I'll come back in a minute. All right, I want to welcome you back. Might be a good conversation to continue over lunch. I would love to hear your thoughts, what you're noticing, and what you're missing. Let me wrap it up with one final thought here. In conclusion then, why did Jesus leave? In light of what we've been talking about, why did Jesus leave? Why is the ascension of Jesus something that we celebrate? We don't grieve this. Why is this a feast of the ascension of Christ, a day where churches around the world traditionally have upped the celebration quotient? Well, the answer to all of those questions, very briefly stated, is this, because there is power in presence. There is power in presence. Where is Jesus now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, right? And that phrase, seated at the right hand of the Father, says more about Jesus' authority, it says more about Jesus' power than it does even about his location, okay? Did you know that nearly every New Testament book, plus several Old Testament prophets, plus several of the Psalms, include this phrase that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is a massively important Christian doctrine. It's not as well understood as it should be. There are nearly a hundred verses in the Bible that testify to the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Here's four quick examples. The writer of Hebrews chapter 10 says that when Jesus Christ had offered For all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Boom, right? Like, it's over now. Paul, uh, to the Christians in Rome, he urges them to put their hope in the power of Jesus Christ, whom, he says, is the one who died and, more than that, was raised again. And then, he says, is at the right hand of God interceding for us, which is amazing. What's Jesus doing? He's praying for us. He's praying for you in this place of ultimate authority, right? In Mark's gospel, this is my favorite one, Jesus is arrested. The high priest says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? To which Jesus replies, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Which is incredible because the, the priest won't even say the name of God. Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed one, trying to keep all the rules. And Jesus is like, let me just be really explicit. Yes, and you will see me seated at the right hand of power is what you're talking about, right? Power, that's where I'll be seated, the right hand of power. And finally, Peter writes, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Like, Tapping out, right? We are in submission to you. You are in the ultimate place of power. Friends, in the Feast of the Ascension, we celebrate that Jesus has ascended to his heavenly throne. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? It means all authority in heaven and on earth is his. It has been given to Christ. Is Jesus physically present to you and me in the same way he was to his disciples during his earthly ministry? No, he's not. But now he is powerfully, spiritually present to, to all. Then he was God in the flesh of one man, wonderfully knowable. People could hear him, they could touch him, they could eat with him, they could see him, but his presence was localized. His presence was, in a sense, limited. He's either in Galilee today or he's in Jerusalem today. He's either the guy on the boat or he's the guy on the road, right? Now the Son of God has retained his humanity, though he is no longer limited by it. He has ascended into heaven, totally victorious, and is above every other authority. And Paul writes, fills all things in every way. Another way to translate that is Jesus is all in all. There is power in presence. That's the fundamental bottom line here. So today, as we long for presence... As we grieve absence, we are celebrating that Christ is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, which is the place of unrivaled power and unlimited presence. It's not the same kind of physical presence. It is an even more profound, real, spiritual presence that can be known in the church and in the sacrament. Friends, we don't have to go on a long journey to another place at another time in order to be with Jesus. Jesus is powerfully present and can be known here and now and even in our darkest hours. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We acknowledge your authority, Lord, and we take great hope in it. We surrender and submit to you. We know that you are a good God. You are actively interceding on our behalf. You are for us. And in a profound, spiritual, and yet, in a sense, even more real way, you are with us. And so we pray for grace, Lord to be faithful witnesses to your love and your presence. May we embrace your presence fully today. May we celebrate it. And may we acknowledge and walk in the power of your spirit to extend your presence 
to everyone around us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.